0: We thank you for this time of worship, and I just love the way that it comes together, even as traffic hindered us from getting a decent practice in or anything like that, Lord. But I just give you glory for the talents that these people have and that they're willing to give to you in this way. I thank you, Lord, that um through music our hearts can be pointed toward you. Just in the midst of a busy week and, and distraction upon distraction, Lord, it's sometimes it's easy to lose our focus, and yet Uh, just four songs, Lord, can recenter our hearts and remind us again how uh, we need to fix our eyes on you, Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Lord, we are grateful that uh, Deb Brown is back with us. Uh, We praise you for the time that she had. I just pray that she would get healthy, um, that your hand would be upon her. Lord, we pray for Marilyn. Lord, we ask for this uh, uh, saint of yours to uh, come to health, Lord, um, that she would be restored. Uh, Lord, you can, you can set the wrong right because you're the one that knits us together in our wombs. And so we ask that you would, on behalf of Marilyn, our sister, we lift her up to you. I pray for her husband, God, just that you would comfort them, that you would send peace, that the doctors and those attending her would know exactly how to treat her and what to do, God. I just pray there would be no question because you're directing every, every angle and every aspect of her care. Just watch over her, Lord. We do pray for Chrissy and Steve and um, Carla and Amy and Nathan as they now travel through the night. We just ask, God, that your hand would be upon them and uh, that you would keep them alert and safe. Uh, You'd be the hedge of protection about them and bring them home safely, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to study your word. We do ask that you would guide and direct our time. We ask it all in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so Isaiah chapter 1 verse 1 says, The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, the kings of Judah. That's our introduction to the book of Isaiah as he unfolds now this vision That he has had. And this really, the book of Isaiah, is the beginning of a new part of the Old Testament. It's a new division. If you were to divide the Old Testament into different sections, we have the first five books of the Bible, which is known as the Pentateuch. That's the the law is given. Um, And then we have the historical books, Judges and First and Second Kings, and First and Second Chronicles, etc. And what we have been studying more recently are the poetry books things like Psalms and Proverbs, um, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. But now begins what comprises the last section uh, of, the, of the Old Testament, and that is what's known as the prophets. And even the prophets are broken into two categories. You have the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, uh, and, the, and Daniel, um, or sorry, Ezekiel and Daniel. And then you have the minor prophets, the rest of them. And um, and it's not major and minor based on importance, but rather major and minor based on size. Isaiah is a large book; it's sixty-six chapters long, uh, and so that's why he he is considered as a major prophet. Just uh, some some things to kind of get an understanding before we head dive head first into the book. What was a prophet? I want to just make sure that we're all on the same page and understand the office of prophet in the Old Testament. And a, a prophet was somebody who had been given charge by God, called by God to serve him in a particular way. It was different than a priest and it was different than a king. Those would be the three major offices of the Old Testament. A prophet was one who spoke to the people on behalf of God. That's the office of being a prophet. He would receive a message, a word from the Lord, to give to the people. A priest, you could look at it, would be just the opposite. A priest was in place to speak to God on behalf of the people. He represented the people to God. Where a prophet was the opposite, he represented God to the people. And that's what we're going to see in the book of Isaiah, is this message given to the people, as it said there in verse 1, of Judah and Jerusalem. Now, prophecy, and the way we understand about prophecy is we think, well, when we hear the word prophecy, we probably think it's future tense. And much of what a prophet spoke regarded the future. Much, we call it history in advance. Prophecy is accurate because it's given by God. And so there, there is no question that it will or is going to happen. And we saw that you know, in the Old Testament or in Isaiah, most often it, it does if, unless it hasn't happened yet. So it's history in advance. But at times, it's not always history in advance. At times, prophets are warning about current conditions. And some of what we see in the book of Isaiah is just that. that what was going on in the land at the time? Civil war had already happened several hundred, a couple hundred years earlier, where Israel separated from Judah and they were two essentially living as separate countries. Isaiah, as it tells us, in the first verse, was in Judah. So he was to the south. What was going on in Israel at the time, shortly after Isaiah came on the scene, Assyria came, was going to come down and take Israel captive. So for the majority of the time, Isaiah is on the scene. Israel is not even a blip on the map. They are, have been conquered by the Assyrians. And so he's dealing with Jerusalem, Judea. One thing I want us to note from there in verse 1, it says the vision of Isaiah. This is one vision. This is one continuous thought. All 66 chapters. And it's going to break out, and I'll explain that in just a minute, but this is just one vision. It wasn't the visions of Isaiah. This is one vision given to the people of Israel. It was prior to, they, prior to when they had gone into captivity under Babylon. Babylon. Uh, Israel was taken captive by the Assyrians in 722 BC, um, and Isaiah is rolling on the scene somewhere around 740, so just a few years before that. He served as prophet, Isaiah did, for four different kings. That's what it tells us there in verse 1. Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. So if you were to look at their reigns and how long each of them reigned, the minimum that Isaiah served as a prophet was 41 years. That's the minimum he could have served and served under those four kings. Chances are it was longer than that, and most commentators would say it was anywhere between 50 and 60 years that Isaiah was on the scene serving as prophet. And some would even say, based on the history of his death, that he even was around when Manasseh was king. Uh, Manasseh became king after Hezekiah. He was formally commissioned to be a prophet at the death of Uzziah. We see that in chapter 6. Chapter 6 of the King, a book of Isaiah, probably one of the more famous chapters where Isaiah is ushered to the throne of God um, and the angel of the Lord touches his lips with the coal from, from the altar. And it's a familiar scene. That's when God says, who will go for us, whom shall I send? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. That's... that's Isaiah being commissioned at that point, Um, so uh, that's when he's officially commissioned. Okay, some more history just to make sure we're all together. 701 BC, so about 20 years after Assyria takes Israel in 701 BC, under Sennacherib, remember him? Uh, uh, The king of Assyria, they came through Israel and attempted to conquer Judah. In fact, they conquered much of the north of Judah, and the only major city they did not take was Jerusalem. But that's the scene, if you recall, I think it's in Second Chronicles... I can't remember the chapter. 16, maybe? That um, an angel of the Lord came and fought against the Assyrians and smote 185,000 Assyrians. One angel wiped out 185,000 of their soldiers. That's the scene. All that was happening while Isaiah was prophet. Uzziah, Hezekiah, two of the kings he served under were good kings who loved God, yet though they loved God, the people living in the land, their hearts were far from them, and we will get that flavor from the, the text. There were other prophets prophesying at the same time. The book of Hosea, the book of Micah. Those are both Isaiah's contemporaries happening at the same time as Isaiah. We learn from chapter 8, verse 3, Isaiah was married, had a wife, and had at least two sons. Chapter 7, verse 3, chapter 8, verse 3 mentions their names. I'm going to butcher the pronunciations, but so we'll just wait till we get there. But uh, so... Micah Hosea were his contemporaries, but Elijah, Elisha, Obadiah, Joel, Jonah, and Amos had already completed their ministries. And then the way that Jewish tradition would say that Isaiah died was that he, late in his life, confronted the sin of King Manasseh, who took issue with him being confronted and either stuffed him in a hollow trunk or Isaiah hid in a hollow trunk. I guess there's debate on that. But he was found either way. Uh, and then Manasseh had Isaiah sawn in half with a wooden saw. And that's how Isaiah died. I can't think of a much worse way to die. It's like having your heart ripped out with a spoon. You know, that's, that's just, you know, that, that's not, not a good way to go to be sawn in half and we get the, uh, we, that's what Jewish tradition would say. And then there's the line in Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith, that talks about uh, how some of the uh, people of old were, uh, in fact, sawn into. it says, or sawn asunder in Hebrews 11:37. 37. we got to talk about what the theme of the book is. And in fact, there's probably two themes, but the major theme of the book is the holiness of God. It declares the holiness of God. In fact, Isaiah's favorite title for God is the Holy One. He uses that title 28 times. Now, that might not seem like a big deal to you. There's 66 chapters just to use the holiness of God or the Holy One 28 times doesn't seem like a lot until you compare it with the rest of the Old Testament. Only six other times in all of the Old Testament is that title of God used. So the Holy One, and in speaking of the holiness of God, is the theme of the book. And what we're going to see is that holiness, which is set apart, that's what holiness means, it's, it's set apart for the use of God. Holiness always becomes judgment when it comes into contact with rebellion. The people of God were rebelling, because God is holy, He therefore had to judge them. And so what's really neat to watch in the book of Isaiah is anytime judgment is depicted or judgment is declared that is going to happen, it is always followed up by a picture of peace or redemption or blessing. Why? Because after judgment, holiness is restored and right living is restored. The second theme and the one you probably would guess of the book is salvation, Right, this is the the book that speaks of the Messiah that is to come, and is quoted often in the New Testament uh, twenty-eight times, or twenty one times in the New Testament. Salvation, and there's and there's many references to the coming Messiah. In fact, the word Isaiah means the Lord saves, even his name. And salvation is mentioned twenty six times in the Book of Isaiah, only seven other times in all the other prophets. Some would, is there anybody that believes Isaiah didn't write the book of Isaiah? We're all on that page. Okay, some would say that Isaiah was not the author of Isaiah. Some would say that Isaiah wrote part of Isaiah, and that there are actually two Isaiahs or three Isaiahs that wrote this book, perhaps. And that's because of the difference in literary, the, the way that it was written, literary writing. Um, is that right? Uh, they're just different styles, but just so that they we're all clear on this, Jesus in John chapter 12, quotes from both the first part of Isaiah and the second part of Isaiah, the one where they would differentiate between the two authors, and both say, and he says they are both written by the same man, Isaiah. If Jesus says Isaiah is the author of Isaiah, i'm good with that. I'm not going to argue with Jesus we'll just say that Isaiah wrote the book and i i don't question it at all i think they're foolish that that they would all right so what we're going to see the first 5 chapters of the book of Isaiah chapters 1 through 5 is the prophecy is the vision it is what's being unfolded and then the rest of the book the other 61 chapters is an elaboration on that vision. It goes into greater detail. And that's why chapter 6 begins with the idea of of Isaiah being commissioned. And it goes into greater detail of the first five chapters. What's really cool to think about, and this is uh, just kind of extra, and you can consider this, but it breaks out really well. The book of Isaiah is kind of like a biblical microcosm. It has... There are 66 books in the Bible. There are 66 chapters in the book of Isaiah. Exactly the same. The Bible is broken into the Old Testament and New Testament. You know how many books are in each? Anybody know? 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 books in the New Testament. Close. <laughs> Somebody tried at least. Everybody else is just a deer in the headlights. Oh, oh he's asking me something. <laughs> 39 chapters are the Old Testament, 27 chapters are the New Testament. What's interesting is if you look at the book of Isaiah, it's broken into the two thoughts 39 chapters and 27 chapters. The first 39 chapters kind of deal with the law and the judgment that is coming, the last 27 chapters speak of salvation, kind of like the New Testament. And so it's kind of almost like a biblical microcosm all in one book. So, in chapter one, verses two through thirty-one, God's gonna lay out the indictment. This is what he has against the uh, against Judah and the people of Jerusalem. So verse two, it says, and we won't take that much time in between each verse. <laughs> if not, if so, we'll be here all night. But verse two says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I've nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled. Against me. So God is calling the universe, which He has the command to do since He created it all, God is calling the universe to be witness against, to the charges against Judah. And what is the charge? Rebellion, right? That's what it says. They have, I have children, they have rebelled against me. So rebellion against God and ingratitude. One of the things that drives me crazy about my kids at times, they're getting better about this, is and probably this is true for every parent, is their ingratitude. It's so often that, they, that you feel taken advantage of and taken for granted. And we do that far more to God than our children do it to us. So something to consider. But that that this would be the charge, that he had brought up children and they have rebelled against God, that would kind of be a slap in the face of the people of Judah, because the Jewish culture was very um, set on placing a high value on their fathers. They were highly respective of their father. They would never treat their earthly father the way they were treating God. They 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 always esteemed their earthly father, and so now he is saying, I have brought up children and they've rebelled against me. Look at verse three. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not consider. So God, as he's speaking to the heavens and the earth, is calling the people of Israel dumber than a dumb animal. Right? We have we have the saying, he's as dumb as an ox. We don't use that a whole lot anymore, at least not in the political correct circles, but perhaps we say it under our breath now and again. Well, he's as dumb as an ox. And God's saying, no, they're dumber. (laughs) They're not even as dumb. They're as stubborn as a mule. No, they're more stubborn than a donkey. That's what he's calling the people of Israel. In fact, the idea here is that animals are more obedient to God than people are. Even the people of God. Alas, sinful nation, he says in verse 4. A people laden with iniquity. It's, they're full of it. A brood of evil of evildoers. Children who are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked to anger. And here's our phrase, the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away backwards. So there are seven charges there in verse 4 uh, that God brings against the nation of Israel. A people, a a sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a brood of evildoers, children who are corruptors, they've forsaken the Lord, they provoked to anger the Holy One of Israel. Seven serious charges laid down. Remember, seven is the number of completion. Their rebellion against God was complete. Verse 5, why should you be stricken again? You will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick and the whole heart faints from the sole of the foot even to the head. There is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. Yuck. They have not been closed up or, or closed or bound up or soothed with ointment. God's yelling at them. He's, he's, he's speaking to them. He's like, there isn't even anywhere healthy to beat you anymore. That's how, that's how bruised they are. I can't even find a good spot to hit you anymore because they've been so rebellious. They're completely unteachable. Your country is desolate. Your city's burned with fire. Strangers devour your land and your presence, and it's desolate as overthrown by strangers. So in verse 7, he's speaking of what is to come. And of course, we know because we've studied Ezra and Nehemiah recently, we know that the Babylonian captivity is coming. They, In fact, God will uh, exact this judgment. He will bring rest to the land. They will be taken off to Babylon as captives. So reading that verse again, thinking of the Babylonian captiv- captivity, "'Your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Strangers devour your land in your presence, and it is desolate.'" as overthrown by strangers. It fits the captivity. So the daughter of Zion is left as a booth in a vineyard, as a hut in a garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city. In other words, he's saying the daughter of Zion, the city of Jerusalem, is left defenseless. Unless the Lord of hosts had left us a very small remnant, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been made like Gomorrah. So even in the midst of this judgment, even in the midst of this seething accusation and right accusation, God is gracious. He is going to leave a remnant. Sodom and Gomorrah were utterly destroyed, entirely wiped out. Yet God in His grace is going to leave a remnant to the people of Israel. And we see that because we have the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. It's the remnant returning from Babylon. Verse 10, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What was the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah? Idolatry is a guess. Sodomy, as a guess, huh? Well, yeah. What sin? What was the sin? Lust. That's kind of what I thought too. It's actually not. What's that? Worshiping themselves. How about this? Check out Ezekiel chapter sixteen, verse forty-nine. Behold, this was the iniquity of thy sister Sodom, pride fullness of bread, an abundance of idleness was in her and in her daughters. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy. Wow. I look at that list. Pride, fullness of bread, abundance of idleness, strengthening, It didn't strengthen the hands. Of, those are lightweight sins. We would classify them as. Pride. Everybody deals with pride. It's a no big deal. Everybody's got pride issues. or it's Not everybody takes care of the poor. You've got to kind of be called to that, don't you? And yet there were enough to eradicate Sodom and Gomorrah. Completely. In God's eyes, these sins were weighty enough that he found it necessary to wipe Sodom and Gomorrah off the face of the earth. Lord, give me your understanding of sin. That was an eye opener to me. So God denounces in verse 10 there the religious hypocrisy of both the rulers and the people, right? It says, you rulers of Sodom, you people of Gomorrah. He's, he's, he's condemning all of the people of Judah. Verses 11 through 15, he's going to talk about the sacrifices that they made. And that they mean nothing. It says in verse 11, To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or goats. When you came to appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, and the calling of assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity and the sacred meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They are a trouble to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Wow. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear why your hands are full of blood. What you and I would call this sin or these things that he's accusing them of, what you and I would call in this day and age, they were playing the church game. You tracking? They they they, they show up to church because it looked it was the right thing to do. It looked good in other people's eyes, but though they were in church, their hearts were a million miles from the things of God. They were playing the game. We were, they were given the sacrifices. We were burning the incense, but it meant nothing because their hearts were far from God. And God says, what, what, what is the value of the blood of, of rams and, and, and bulls? It's, that's not the point. What I want is your heart. Your hands are full of blood. We can fool people with the church game, but we cannot fool God. We can hide the blood of our hands from people, but we cannot hide the blood on our hands from Him. And the blood on our hands indicates our guilt. So verse 16, God says, Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice, rebuke the oppressor, defend the fatherless, plead for the widow. He's calling them to repentance. He's calling them to make a change. He's, he's issuing the way back to God. That's the idea of repentance, to turn a, a 180, to go in the opposite direction, to head back toward God in the prescribed way. Wash yourself, make yourself clean. Of course, we know that we are only washed clean in Christ. I like that line cease to do evil. It doesn't say slow down on your evil. Cease means stop. In other words, be holy as I am holy God is saying. Stop doing this evil and then learn to do good. Good doesn't you doing good doesn't just happen. Doing, us doing good is not our natural state. Us doing evil is our natural state. You don't have to teach a child to lie. They know from birth, because they're liars from birth. You don't have to teach a child to steal. They just do. We don't have to teach ourselves to be evil. We are that way because we're born with sin nature. We have to learn how to do good. That is a learned behavior. It is us striving, putting forth effort, um, setting our energy toward learning to do good. It's a learned behavior. And I love, 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 love verse 18. Highlightable verse here. This is the invitation that God gives to his people. Even in the midst of these accusations, hear this, hear the love of God in this. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, you've got blood on your hands. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. And though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool, purified, white as snow. Only to the human race does an infinite God offer a spot at the table to reason with Him. He doesn't do that to the animal creation. He doesn't do that to the Plant kingdom. He doesn't do that to the, you know, the the stars. Uh, he doesn't do that to the, the created cosmos. Only to the human race does this infinite God, who created all things, offer a spot at His table to say, "Come on, let's talk about this. Let's reason this out. Let's think about this together." And in fact, He says, "Come now." And the idea of now isn't like now as in time, but now as in urging. He's saying, "Please." Come, let's reason this out together. As I thought about that, I was just overwhelmed with that thought. This great, mighty, high, holy, righteous, just God. Glorious, magnificent, wonderful, running out of adjectives to describe the majesty and awe of God. How low does he have to condescend to reason with me? How much does he have to dumb himself down so that I can understand him? That that he would reason with me in a way that I can understand. But that's his heart. That's his desire. He is infinitely more intelligent than I would ever be. His logic is far more sound than I could ever be. His reasons go deeper than I would ever understand and yet he invites me and you and I us to the table and says let's let's get it so that you understand these things talk about love he wants to make it right and he's willing to condescend to our level jesus came to the earth in fact the staining blood is on our hands but he's going to cleanse us though our our sins are like scarlet they shall be as white as snow. He's going to purify us. I know snow is a four-letter word, especially around these parts. I grew up in upstate New York. Snow's awesome. I'm not a skier or anything, but I love snow. I always have. And what I particularly love about snow is when you get a decent amount of it, eight or nine or ten inches, a couple feet of it, it makes everything quiet. You notice that? It's like the the it literally has a dampening effect on the noise. Even in the midst of a city, of course, the traffic slows down and all that kind of stuff, but it has this quieting effect that, that suddenly you can't hear the traffic. That even you have a a clearer understanding of your thoughts. It's it's a it's a strange thing. But when it snows this winter, experience that. Go step outside and and listen. It's quieter. When I think about that, I love that picture because when we're washed, when our, our scarlet sins have been washed white as snow, it quiets our soul. It gives us peace. It gives us rest. Just like that first fall, that first snowfall. I love verse 18. Purified. If you're willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So depending on what you do with the invitation given in verse 18, there's two possible results. Willing and obedient, you're going to eat the good of the land. Rebellious and you refuse, you're going to be devoured by the sword. It's going to go one way or the other. We know by history what they chose. How the faithful city has become a harlot It was full of justice, righteousness lodged in it, but now murderers, the people of God had prostituted themselves to other gods. And in that, it says in verse 22, your silver has become dross, your wine mixed with water. I don't know, I'm not a huge wine drinker, but I wouldn't want it mixed with water. I'm going to drink wine, I want it straight up, that that kind of thing. Uh, if I want, if I'm going to have a piece of silver, I don't want it full of dross. Dross is the the impurities. In fact, that's what as you heat up silver, that's what rises to the top. They skim off the impurities off the top. That's skimming the dross, and that's what Israel had become was impure. Your princes are rebellious and companions of thieves. Everyone loves bribes and follows after their rewards. So he's speaking of America. I mean, no, he's speaking of Israel in the day, very similar to our justice system today. They do not defend the fatherless, nor does the cause of the widow come before them. So they were unjust. Therefore, says the Lord. Therefore, the Lord says, the Lord of hosts. There's uh, an interesting title for God, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel. He says, ah, I will rid myself of my adversaries and take vengeance on my enemies. I will turn my hand against you and thoroughly purge away your dross and take away your alloy. God says, I'm going to lower the boom. I'm bringing it. He, he holds the power to do so. In fact, it says the Lord of hosts there in verse 24, the way the message translates that, and I like the name, it's the God of the angel armies. This is speaking of His might and His power, His strength. He is the God of the angel armies. Jesus uh, from the cross, or from the garden, I I could call a legion of angels to rescue me. He is in control. And He says, I'm going to rid myself of my adversaries. He says He's going to do it. He's going to do it. His desire is for holiness and purity. That's what it says there at the end of verse 25. I'm going to purge away your dross. You guys, I've shared that story before, but just in case you haven't heard it, have you, it was, somebody was asked of a silversmith, somebody that was refining silver, and as they skimmed the dross off of the top, somebody came along and asked them, how do you know when the silver has been refined? How do you know when the silver is pure? And he said, that's easy. I can see myself in it. When, the, when all the dross has been removed from liquid silver, it becomes reflective like a mirror. And so you know that it's purified when you can see yourself in it. And that's what Christ is saying of you and I as well. I want to remove the dross. I want to pull out all the impurities so that when it's completed, I see myself in you. He wants to take away the dross of our lives. He says in verse 26, I will restore your judges as at the first and at your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Righteousness, that's right standing or in right standing with God. That's where we want to be. is in right standing with God. He says, afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness. After this judgment, there's always hope behind the judgment. That's what we said at the beginning. Anytime judgment is going to be exacted, God always offers an alternative or a message of hope. There will be a remnant. And afterward, I'm going to do this. It will be called the city of righteousness. Zion shall be redeemed with justice and her penitence with righteousness. The destruction of transgressors and of sinners shall be together, and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. For they shall be ashamed of the terebinth trees which you have desired, and you shall be embarrassed because of the gardens which you have chosen. That was speaking of their idolatry. And the terebinth trees, they they would shape into phallic symbols, and they would um, set up these gardens for sexual impropriety, and and that was the way they worshipped these false gods. And God is saying, once I have removed the dross, once the wrong has been set right, they will be ashamed of these things. They will be ashamed of their idolatry. For, it says in 30, you shall be as a terebinth tree whose leaf fades, and as a garden that has no water. Compare that to the blessed man of Psalm chapter 1 whose leaf never fades because his tree is planted by the streams of water. The strong shall be as tender and the work of it as a spark. Both will burn together and no one shall quench them. So the judgment is going to be effective. It will produce repentance that is complete. It's going to remove those who are... Uh, not going to um, repent, not going to set the wrong right. Shame is going to come from this, but you know what? Shame can be a good thing. I think in our society, we 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 try to hush hush shameful things or, or being having been brought to shame. We we don't we don't celebrate that as a good thing. We try to hide shame. We try to remove. Shame. Yet God allows shame for the purpose of righteousness, for the purpose of purity, for the purpose of holiness. Sometimes He allows us to be ashamed. Things like Ashley Madison being hacked, so that pastors and many others, and Josh Duggar has to repent of their sin and come forward with it. They're shamed. But God is going to use that shame for the purpose of righteousness, for the purpose of holiness. So shame can be a good thing. It was my intent to do chapter 2 tonight as well, but rather than rush through it, we'll pause there because chapter 2, especially the first five verses are just phenomenal. So uh, we'll pause there for this evening. We'll pick up chapter 2 next week. It was my intent to go a little faster, because there's 66 chapters, and so we, you know, that could be, that's more than a year if we do one chapter a week. Although, I don't want to necessarily go for distance. We'll see how it goes. We'll see how it lays out. So, go for depth, not for distance, right? All right, let's stand, let's close in prayer. The introduction, the, the, the story behind the story was a little bit lengthy. All right, Lord, we thank you and praise you for the way that you love us. And I thank you for the invitation of verse 18, that you invite us to come and to reason with you that through the blood of Jesus Christ, the the ultimate and perfect sacrifice, our sins, our our blood-stained hands, are washed white as snow, are purified like wool. We stand right before you, Lord, not based on our own merit or the things that we've accomplished or done, but, but through the blood of Jesus Christ we are justified to the just god and so we say thank you thank you for redeeming us and thank you for the sanctification process lord that through our walk with you you are continually making us more holy lord you are removing the dross of our lives you are purifying us Lord, and it is our heart's desire to know you more and to love you more and to follow you more and to be more like you, Lord. We want people to see you in us. So, Lord, if there be any wicked way in us, we ask that you would search our hearts, that we might, too, repent, that we might come to you, Lord, and seek your forgiveness. We thank you, Lord, for making the way. We thank you, Lord, for loving us enough that you, we are not left in our sin, but that we're purified. May we, with our lives, honor you. May the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart be acceptable in your sight. May we please you with all we do, because we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.